Thank you. I call this meeting of the San Francisco Youth Commission to order at 5.15 p.m. Clerk will call the roll. Yes, on the call the roll, Commissioner Wong. Present. Commissioner Wong is present. Officer Adair. Present. Officer Adair is present. Officer Wu. Present. Officer Wu is present. Uh, Commissioner Ye. Present. Commissioner Ye is present. Commissioner Cisneros. Present. Commissioner Cisneros is present. Vice Chair Lestana. Present. Vice Chair Lestana is present. Officer Fong. Present. Officer Fong is present. Officer Stack Lozano. Present. Uh, Commissioner Stack Lozano is present. Uh, Commissioner Deng. Present. Commissioner Deng is present. Uh, Commissioner Fagawanoa. Present. Commissioner Fagawanoa is present. Commissioner Ansari. Present. Commissioner Ansari is present. Commissioner Aliotto Pier. Present. Commissioner Aliotto Pier is present. Commissioner Perez. Present. Commissioner Perez is present. Uh, Commissioner Lampkins. Present. Commissioner Lampkins is present. Commissioner Marukin. Present. Commissioner Marukin is present. Officer Lunamir. Present. Commissioner Lunamir is present. And Chair Barker Plummer. Present. Chair Barker Plummer is present. Chair with 17 present and zero absences. You have quorum. Thank you. Please call item two. Item number two is communications. The minutes will reflect that the Youth Commission participated in this meeting in person. The Commission recognizes that public access to city services is essential and invites public participation in the following ways. First, public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Comments or opportunities to speak during public comment period are available in person at the podium. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. You can email them to the Youth Commission at youthcom at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, be forwarded to the commissioners and be included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 345, San Francisco, California, 94102. And Chair, that concludes my communications. Thank you. Please call item three. Item number three is approval of the agenda. Commissioners will take this time to look over the agenda and if there are any motions. Commissioner, you have motions to approve the agenda. Is there a second? Officer Wu seconds. Commissioner Ye, seconded by Commissioner Wu, motions to approve today's agenda. Um, is there any discussion? Is there any public comment? If members of the public would like to speak on item three, which is approval of the agenda, please come to the podium. Chair, you have no public comment. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. I think we can take this by voice vote. All in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed say no. Abstentions. The motion passes. Please call item four. Item number four is approval of the minutes. Are there any motions on this item? Motion to approve the minutes. Commissioner Lene Amir seconds. Commissioner Fong, seconded by Commissioner Lene Amir, motions to approve the minutes of the November 20th, 2023 meeting of the San Francisco Youth Commission. Is there any discussion? Is there any public comment? If members of the public will like to speak on item four, approval of the minutes, please come to the podium. Chair, you have no public comment. Public comment is now closed. I think we can take this by voice vote. All in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed say no. Abstentions. The motion passes. Please call item five. 
Item number five is general public comment for matters under the jurisdiction of the Youth Commission, but not on today's agenda. If members of the public would like to speak, please come to the podium. Chair, you have no public comment. Public comment is now closed. Please call item six. Item number six is presentations. Item 6A is light show concerns at SF Botanical Garden. So I'll go ahead and welcome Kathy Howard and Linda Schaefer from San Franciscans for Urban Nature. So you all have 10 minutes to present, and then we have some time uh, for questions from commissioners. And then I believe there's also a motion that we'll take a look at at the end. Okay, good evening, commissioners. I'm Catherine Howard. I'm a retired landscape architect and co-founder of several grassroots park groups, as well as serving on various citizens advisory committees for park issues. Dr. Linda Schaefer is a retired economics professor who cares about environmental and social justice issues. She served on Prozac, the Parks, Recreation, and Open Space Advisory Committee for eight years. You have a copy of our detailed background regarding parks in your packet. Uh, that is slide one. Okay, slide two, please. The nonprofit Gardens of Golden Gate Park, which includes the Botanical Garden, the Tea Garden, and the Conservatory of Flowers, has issued a new request for proposals, or RFT, for nighttime light shows in those gardens. And you can read the introduction to the RFP there. The important things are they want to do a winter lights installation after regular admission hours, uh, mid-November through January, about two months next year. And they are also open to multi-year proposals. We have concerns about the impacts on the environment, the impacts on people, and the lack of public process for this proposal. Slide three, please. Our first concerns are environmental. The RFP recognizes that the Botanical Garden is a 55-acre living museum of plants, but this living museum also supports wildlife, birds, mammals, and insects. Nowhere in the RFP do they mention wildlife or habitat. Slide four, please. The RFP ignores the impact of lighting on wildlife. Wildlife needs darkness at night to thrive, and in some cases, even to survive. For example, too much artificial lighting can have an impact on birds' life cycles and nesting patterns. Birds can be drawn off course due to artificial lighting resulting in disorientation and collisions. Golden Gate Park is on the Pacific Flyway in the diagram and thousands of birds pass over the city at night. Insects are also negatively impacted by the presence of artificial lighting. They are vital to the food chain and as pollinators, but their population is in decline. Slide five, please. Uh, it was kind of fun. I did a Google search on negative impacts of artificial light on wildlife, and I found a mere 15,400,000 articles on this, most of them scholarly. Yet, the RFP ignores the impact of artificial lighting on wildlife. Slide six, please. Dark skies. The RFP makes no mention of trying to minimize park lighting to protect dark skies. The photo, which came from the RFP, seems to celebrate having bright lights that point skyward. Furthermore, the RFP ignores the cumulative impact of adding lighting in the park. Golden Gate Park is already lighted with 150,000 watts of light at the soccer fields every night. There's new lighting for the tennis courts. There's security lighting for the concerts, weeks before the concerts and during the concerts. And there is lighting for other special events. Slide seven. Quiet nighttime areas are important for wildlife health providing rest and cover 
from predators. Bats can be impacted by sound pollution at night when they are hunting. For example, this can result in failed feedings, collisions and mortality, and yes, there are bats in Golden Gate Park. The proposed project will introduce noise and crowds to areas that are quiet at night. They hope to attract 80,000 to 180,000 people over a two-month period. That is either 3,000 people a night or enormous crowds on weekends. They also allow for music or other amplified sound. Slide eight, please. There are also impacts on people. The RFP lists the goal of addressing nature deficit disorder in children, a term used to describe the impact, impact of people becoming alienated from nature. The RFP values the artificial attraction of a light show over the quiet and darkness of the natural world. Ironically, this could contribute to nature deficit disorder. The message to children is that nature is not really very interesting unless it's been turned into an attraction. The RFP also discusses the diversity of garden attendees as a reason for the light show, implying that some demographic groups require artificial stimuli in order to appreciate nature. I personally find this an offensive assumption. Studies show that diverse populations already prefer natural landscapes over environments, and I have to say, in my work in the community, I've found the same. And now I'll go to Linda to talk about public process. Oh, good. You can adjust it. Yeah. It doesn't seem to want to say it. That's okay. <laughs> Hello, commissioners. <laughs> Um, can I say very quickly, I didn't know the city had a youth commission, and nor did I know that it was populated with actual youth. I, I, this is so exciting to me. Anyway, hi. Um, you, you've now heard our environmental concerns about the Winter Lights proposal. I will be addressing a different kind of concern, the difficulty the public faces in trying to provide input into the discussion. Um, to understand this concern, it helps if you know a little bit about two topics, public-private partnerships, PPPs or P3s, and California's Brown Act. If we could have the next, what slide are we on? Next one, please. Um, if you can see, there's a reference to a private, non-profit part of a private-public partnership. What are those? Well. They are former formal agreements between branches of city government and private for-profit or non-profit um, organizations. Why are such hybrids created, you might be wondering. Three common reasons is to assist government entities in doing things they cannot legally do for themselves, like advocating for ballot measures, to augment fundraising, or because it makes more economic sense to use existing expertise instead of trying to plan, fund, and produce a project by themselves. During the Q&A period, if you're interested, I can give you a couple of examples of such things in San Francisco. But moving along, California's Brown Act, which I hope you've all heard of, but just in case, um, it was passed in 1953. It guarantees the public's right to attend and participate in local legislative bodies. It's the reason, for example, why agendas for this commission must almost always be posted in advance of meetings. 
there must be time for public comment during the meetings and there have to be minutes for people to read after. Now, back to our current situation. The PPP involved here is a formal partnership between the SF Rec and Park Department and a nonprofit called the Gardens of Golden Gate Park. I'm skipping a whole bunch of history here, but um, in the slide that you can see, that is a description of the agreement describing who does what. And the important part of that is because Winter Lights is an event proposed for gardens, the GGGP, the Gardens of Golden Gate Park, um, they are the ones who issued the request for proposals for this idea to light up the Botanical Garden and maybe others, not the Recreation Park Department. This matters in terms of public input. Next slide, please. This, you've got to have flowcharts. This is bureaucracy here. Um, if, if RPD had proposed the Winter Lights event because of the Brown Act, the decision-making process that ensued might have looked like the first flowchart. Lots of advance notice, meetings, public comment, public notices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The second flowchart, which you may notice is much smaller, um, that's the one that captures what the GGDP's decision-making process looks like from the public's point of view. The nonprofit and its board is not subject to the Brown Act, so it meets in private, it discusses in private, it makes decisions in private. So here's the result. The public had no idea and Winter Lights idea was being considered until mid-October when the RFP issuance was announced. And the only way citizens have had to express their concerns is to write or email the board of the GGGP and hope that the letters and emails are delivered and read. The next slide, please. And we're back to, there you are. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Um, as an ex-economics professor, she wanted an hour, but I told her we couldn't do that. <laughs> but Linda knows, all. she's done all this research, so afterwards if you have a question about the three Ps, so she said she'll be glad to answer them. So basically, um, in conclusion, the problems with the RFP are negative impacts of light and noise on wildlife in an important habitat area, the cumulative impact of further reducing dark skies over Golden Gate Park, it values artificial attractions over nature, lack of notice to the public, and very seriously, uh, lack of public process and input for decisions about what is your public land. The, goal, the park belongs to you. It doesn't belong to Rec and Park. It belongs to you. And here is somebody off doing meetings and making decisions, and you know nothing about it. Slide 12. Sorry. So we are here. We're hoping you will consider passing a resolution, a writing letter to let your officials know your concerns. Write it to the Gardens of Golden Gate Park, but uh, also uh, the Board of Supervisors, the Rec and Park Commission, Commission on the Environment. And let's get people involved in this. Contact groups you belong to, 
Um, you're all on social media, let people know about it. And if you do write letters, please share it with us and we'll be glad to answer any questions we can. And we appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. And also welcome to the Youth Commission. So I will note just for, I know we have other presenters, we began late because of technical issues. So we're, I think about 10 minutes behind, I wanna say. So we apologize for that. Um, so are there any questions for today's presenters before we look at the motion? Okay, um, I know Commissioner Wu as a motion, right? So do you want to um, introduce and read that out and then also move it and see if there's a second? Yeah, so the motion is to support efforts supporting San Franciscans for urban nature, SFUN advocacy to urge gardens of Golden Gate Park to not hold light shows. Motion to urge gardens of Golden Gate Park to rescind the request for proposals RFP for holding light shows in either the San Francisco Botanical Garden, the Japanese Tea Garden, or the Conservatory of Flowers. Whereas, the San Francisco Youth Commission is a chartered body in the city and county of San Francisco, implying the, youth of, implying the voice of youth in government spaces. And, whereas, San Franciscans for Urban Nature, SFUN, is a group of community members who support protecting nature in San Francisco, and whereas, San Franciscans for Urban Nature, SFUN, submitted a letter to gardens of Golden Gate Park to not hold light shows in various gardens in Golden Gate Park, and whereas the, the request for proposals, RFP, of the installation and operation of additional lighting, including a light show of sounds, is environmentally damaging, and whereas Golden Gate Park is a vital resource for plants and wildlife, was while a unique place for people to experience nature within an urban environment, and therefore be it moved that the San Francisco Youth Commission will support the San Franciscans for Urban Nature's SFUN advocacy and urges the Gardens of Golden Gate Park to rescind the request for proposals, RFP, for holding light shows in either the San Francisco Botanical Garden, the Japanese Sea Garden, or the Conservatory of Flowers. Thank you. Um, so is there a motion, and I also, know that there are grammatical corrections, I think. Mm -hmm. So if we can have a motion to approve the motion um, with grammatical corrections. I just had a question, I think, before we move to approve it um, or make the motion. Um, I just want to say thank you for your presentation and thank you for taking the time to be here today. Um, I did have a few kind of concerns that arise especially regarding these light shows because they draw so much, um, they bring visitors from all throughout San Francisco to the west side of San Francisco, which is so important for you know our community and for the business in, San, in the west side of San Francisco as well. Um, and I, you know, we can, look, we can look into this as well, but I had since, since the Gardens of Golden Gate Park uh, works with SF Rec to do the light shows, I'm wondering if you know, they have actually checked whether, checked the environmental um, harms or whether there are envi environmental harms um, from the light shows and, you know, the processes that they're taking um, to make sure that this is, uh, that what they're doing is safe. And to be honest, at night as well, I think these light show and park lighting is actually, I think, is 
extremely important for individuals who are in the park at night um, for safety reasons as well, especially when it can be too dark, um, there are safety concerns at night. Um, I, I will address the safety concerns first. Mm -hmm. um, the International Dark Sky Association has talked about this, and you can light places carefully and safely with light that is appropriate for wildlife and dark skies. Um, and that, that is something that definitely should be done. In fact, I, I would love to see a dark skies ordinance for the whole city so that we can see the scars at night. There is no light show like being able to look up at the stars at night. Um, for bringing people into the park, uh, there were some letters I believe were submitted to the commission from, uh, for example, Noreen Whedon. Noreen Whedon is a long-term uh, bird watcher, bird expert, actually leads bird trips all over the country. And she is appalled at this and very worried about the damage to wildlife. So that is one local expert. She also has some suggestions in her letter about the Arboretum and other things that they could do to raise money to fund them and to help Breck and Park. So I think the thing that you need to think about is oftentimes you're presented by the city or someone with a proposal and say, you have to do this or we're not going to be able to get money. And you have to look at it very carefully and question it and say, really, there's nothing else you can do? There's no way that you can talk about dark skies have children come at night in the dark, of course, carefully supervised, and talk about it. There's no way that you can have programs indoors at night and talk about things like that. There are other ways that Noreen suggested in her letter to bring people to the park. There are also letters from uh, Ruth Cravanis, who was one of the first environment commissioners. And there was an article in the um, Richmond Review Sunset Beacon that quoted Vicki Hoover, who's a very long time member of the Sierra Club and has worked on the 30 by 30 project of preserving 30% of our land by 2030. And she was appalled at this project. So I'd say this particular project um, is not environmentally a good idea. But finding a way to make money for the parks, of course, there are always ideas. So let's we send this particular one and let's go back to the drawing board and find something else. And then the last thing I think you brought up was about Reckon Park. Did you want to talk about that? And, and whether they're working with Reckon Park, which I think the answer is. The answer is we don't know. We don't know because nobody's sharing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will just add that they we are told that they are taking into account possible effects on the environment, but they don't say how or what they're looking at or who they're asking or much of anything. I mean, that's that's part of the, the problem is that with the closed process that we're faced with. So it's a really good question, and I wish we knew the answer to it. But Thank you. Um, I know Commissioner Fong had a question, and then I also know Commissioner Aliota Pierre. So Commissioner Fong. Yeah, so I, I mean, San Francisco currently is facing like a really tight um, budget this year. So I feel like stimulating the economy in this way could be potentially beneficial to the city as a whole. But I was more so curious to understand this whole lighting 
project uh, concept. So are they like charging a fee for people to enter to come watch or? Yeah, yeah the fee is like 28 to $40, something like that per person. And of course, there are the usual tickets to quote unquote undeserved communities, but you have to find out how to get those. Um, so it will be very expensive. Um, for in terms of earning money, uh, I think it's we are at a time when we have to make a decision about the environment. Are we going to exploit the environment to make money? Or are we going to protect the environment and find other ways to make money? There's a redwood grove in the Arboretum. They could cut it down and sell benches and make money. There's a lot of things that probably could be done to exploit it. Heck, I've had people say, why don't we build housing in Golden Gate Park? We need housing, let's do that. And I'm like, well, okay, you can build over everything, but you're not gonna have an environment, you're not gonna have nature, you're not gonna have the earth. Golden Gate Park is 1,100 acres. We need to turn around this idea of nature as entertainment and make it more nature. It can be appreciated and cherished and valued, and we will find ways to make money doing that. Thank you. Uh, quick follow-up. Yeah, so have there been any studies on like the in economic impacts that this event will have, or there's just kind of been no information regarding this at all? You know, the yeah, go ahead. Well, that doesn't mean. Um, again, we don't know. But um, I think the one thing, I do appreciate the fact, having served on PROSAC for all, all those years, um, budget times of tight budgets are, are hard on lots of departments, in particular Rec and Park. So it's not surprising that they're trying to come up with some ways to supplement their, their income. So the question is, is this the way to do it? And that's kind of what I would say. Are there economic studies of, about, what was your question? Yeah, they, like, have, there, have they like considered the economic impacts that this would have? Like would it outweigh the potential negative effects of all of the environmental? Damage? Oh, I wish they would, but I have no evidence that, that they have done that. Thank you. Um, I, I'm just gonna add that these questions are good. So if this project was going through a commission like yours, you commissioners could ask, can we see an economic study? I mean, planning does that all the time. Can we see this? Can we see that? So there's, there's different parts to this. One is I, I always worry when people say, can we do something to the environment and we'll make it up by making money? So I think we have to be, and I know you don't mean that, but you have to be really careful of that. And secondly, the process is really important. There is no process here. There is no public process. There is no public input. Uh, a few people wrote letters and were told, don't worry, you're pretty little head about it. We know what we're doing, yada, yada, yada. And these are people who had long time experience. So we run, we've run up against a brick wall and that's, that's why we're here today. Commissioner Aliota Pierre. Yeah. Hi, uh, thanks for coming out to present. Uh, I had a question, I have questions more surrounding about like what the actual light show is, right? So you guys are talking about how like light pollution and dark skies and all of that and how it's really bad for the birds that are flying by. I mean, a few things, a, how is it different than just like the fact that we live in a major U.S. city? So there's the already very existent light pollution that you can see as far as Sonoma, Napa, like far out in every single direction. You can see it for hundreds of miles out in sea. 
So what exactly, like how much difference will this actually make? And then also, uh, I just like did a quick little look up. So we have like the conservative light shows, which are 30 minutes each every night, which already happen. How exactly would these be so different and so much more harmful to the environment? Like why is this, how long would they last? Where would they be? What time would they be? Does it actually affect the birds or do the birds fly by at like one or two in the morning? Kind of like actually like details of the light show. Okay. Um, in terms of how harmful will it be overall? Um, again, that would be a good thing to know, to study. But cumulative impacts are very important and they're very difficult to quantify. I think what we need to do is say, are we going to keep saying, this little thing won't hurt, this won't hurt, this won't hurt, or are we going to at some point start saying, we have to stop. We have to start backing up. We have to have fewer things lighted up. We have to look at the lighting and how it works. One of the things our organization did is we advocated for four years to get the Ferris wheel out of the park. The thing was an eyesore. Um, I'm also interested in historic preservation. It didn't belong there, but at night, I mean, it just lit the place. And there was the noise from it and everything else. And finally, unfortunately, due to economics, <laughs> it got moved out. And, and I went by the concourse about a week afterwards, and I could hear a great bear owl hooting in one of the trees. You know, the, it was magical. It was dark and it was magical. So we need to make a decision. Are we going to keep uh, piling things up again and again and again until there just isn't any darkness? Or are we going to start paring back? And I think this is one place, especially in a botanical garden with native plants, which are pollinated by insects and birds that might depend on this. If you want specific studies on how this would affect those plants there, that's great. Let's, let's get them. But think you've got to think a little big picture. What are we doing to our park? What are we doing to our green spaces? And that's with the what are we doing to the earth? And did you have another question? No. Okay. I, yeah. So thank you, commissioners, and thank you both. I do want to be mindful of time as well. Um, so I know we have a motion from Commissioner Wu that was read out. I'm wondering if there is a motion and a second to move that forward, or Commissioner Wu? Yeah, can I motion to move it forward? Mm -hmm. You can motion to approve. Yeah, Commissioner Wu motions to approve the motion. Is there a second? Second day, Commissioner Wong. Uh, moved by Commissioner Wu, seconded by Commissioner Wong. Is there any discussion? Excuse me. We, right. I'm sorry, we have a public comment person here. There, there will be a public comment opportunity after, after we take a discussion. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, is there any discussion? Commissioner Ye. I think, given the current wording of the motion, you know, I would love to see more research and more um, data um, to back up, you know, the concerns that we brought up today um, amongst the commission. Um, but for me personally, um, I'm a little hesitant to um, approve this motion, and I just want to um, just let everyone know that. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Lestana. Yeah, um, just a second. That like 
I would like to acknowledge that, like, I do think, like, light pollution is a big issue, especially because SF is, like, a big city. It is a big contributor to, like, light pollution, like, for the fact that we can't, like, see the stars in SF. But, like, for this, like, specific motion, I don't know. I feel like light shows, personally, I don't feel like they're, like, the biggest contributor to light pollution in the city when, like, buildings are constantly lit, like, all the time in, like, SF. Like, I feel like having, like, 30-minute light shows in, like, different parts of the park at night isn't, like, the biggest thing that affects light pollution um and i think like i would more so support something researching the effects of light pollution and like what sf could do to like pull back on those effects that isn't necessarily just the light shows because i feel like there are um like more that we could do apart from just the light shows i don't know thank you krishna fong yeah, I'm also a little bit on, on the edge with this as well. I think the environment is super important, but at the same time, there are a lot of factors that we need to weigh in, and I would definitely like more clarity on the whole situation before I go ahead and support the motion. So hopefully we can get some more research and as well as like more information and see what maybe Rec and Park is doing on their end, um, just so that there's more light on everything that's happening. <laughs> more light. Um, any other discussion? Seeing, oh, Commissioner Alley would appear. Yeah, I think it's just, I think we also need to like, actually remember the fact that we do live in a major U.S. city. Like, a city is a city. It's not the most welcoming place for a lot of nature. Golden Gate Park is great. Love Golden Gate Park. Go there a lot. Um, but, like, I think we all need to, like, those birds fly around the city. Those are city birds. Those are not national park birds. If you want to go see real nature, you want to go see the stars, you go to Marin. You go to, I don't know, Danville. <laughs> like, you don't come to San Francisco to see the stars. Um, I think it's a great, like, idea to lessen light pollution and to kind of be more welcoming to animals, but I think that this is the wrong way to go about it, especially because this is here to help the community, um, to help put more funds into parks, to help do all this stuff. Whereas like we see buildings in downtown, those are just corporate offices. Thank you. I do, okay. I will let Commissioner Wong because I know that, but if you can keep it quick, it would be appreciated. Um, and then we should take a vote and move forward. Um, I just wanted to say that I will be supporting this because, you know, economic gain is often like, it, it's short term while environmental damage can have very long-lasting effects, and um, environmental degradation can, you know, lead to significant economic losses in the long term. Um, we already know, like, all the damage that the Sky Star Ferris wheel is doing to Golden Park, and adding more to that is just going to exacerbate the econo um, environmental degradation in Golden Park. Thank you. Um, I think we will move to public comment, and then... Two minutes for public comment, yeah. Okay. So if members of the public would like to speak on this item, uh, please come to the podium. We will have two minutes. So you can start making the line. Go. Oh, sorry, I didn't know. Could you restart that for me? Sorry, thanks. Thanks. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the co-founder of Mission Verde. If you don't know what Mission Verde is, you can visit missionverde.org or ask me when I'm not being timed. I'm also a recovering attorney, a certified disability access specialist, a, me a member of SFUN, and I do my best to advocate for environmental justice. 
A couple years ago, my little brother treated our family to the LA Lightscape Holiday Show at the LA Arboretum. He thought this would be a great family activity. Um, of the many things I could say about that experience, feeling like I was in nature was not one of them. Uh, it was more like a circus with the lights and food trucks and music, uh, except in this circus, the animal cruelty was just invisible. It would have been more impactful to me personally to just have seen that same light show on the side of a building in the downtown. Here's what the G3P's RFP says on its theory of change. Expanding people's understanding of the value of plants to human environmental health inspires awe and activism, action, and advocacy. I agree with that, and I learned nothing about the value of plants through LA's lightscape. It was just an expensive gimmick. Having said this, I co-founded Mission Verde because I don't believe it's enough to just oppose something. You should offer solutions. Years ago, I served on the board of directors for Youth Speaks, a nonprofit that empowers youth to speak their truth, and they held a lot of slams that people paid good money to attend. So here's a thought. If GGGP really wants to address nature deficit disorder, invite youth to explore the botanical gardens with the challenge to write a poem afterward that answers the question, what does nature have to teach us about how to live in peace? Or what does nature have to teach us about resilience in the face of climate change? Or what does nature have to teach us about the importance of diversity? Mother Nature doesn't need to be covered in lights. Her light is bright enough. Let herself empower the voice of youth. If ecos can live in harmony, so can we. If plants and trees can adapt, so can we. And if biodiversity is the foundation of a healthy ecosystem, our diversity is critical for the success of the human race. Lots of cities do light shows. This is nothing new. But doing it in a park is a gimmicky circus that hurts animals that belongs in the past. Thank you. Thank you for your public comment. Is there any further public comment? With that, public, public comment is now closed. I think we'll take a roll call vote. Um, so on that motion, Commissioner Wong? Aye. Commissioner Wong? Aye. Officer Adair? Nay. Officer Adair, nay. Um, Officer Wu? Aye. Officer Wu, aye. Commissioner Ye? Nay. Commissioner Ye, nay. Uh, Commissioner Cisneros? Aye. Commissioner Cisneros, aye. Vice Chair Lasana? Nay. Vice Chair Lasana, nay. Officer Fong? Abstention. Officer Fong? Abstain. Abstains. Uh, Commissioner Stock Lozano? Abstain. Commissioner Stock Lozano? Yeah. Okay. Finish the roll call and then. Yeah, they can. Can I just ask? Uh, Commissioner Ding? Nay. Commissioner Ding? Nay. Um, Commissioner Fagawanoa? Aye. Commissioner Fagawanoa? Aye. Commissioner Ansari? Aye. Commissioner Ansari? Aye. Commissioner Aliotu Pier? Nay. Commissioner Aliotu Pier? Nay. Uh, Commissioner Perez? Nay. Commissioner Perez? Nay. Uh, Commissioner Lampkins? Aye. Commissioner Lampkins? Aye. Commissioner Marukin? Nay. Commissioner Marukin? Nay. Uh, Officer Lonemir? Nay. Commissioner Lonemir? Nay. And then Chair Barker Plummer? Nay. And to clarify to commissioners, um, you aren't able to abstain unless you like. What, what is the rule? If you have. Um, it's only if you have a personal conflict yes. or there's like some reason you aren't able to know about the topic. So I think if we go through the abstentions and have them vote 
Is that the best way forward? Well, they can still abstain or they can... Right, but they should... I think that there was some confusion around what the yeah. parameters were around abstaining. So if you feel that you do have a conflict of interest, then you can abstain. But I think it's worth checking with them again, if that's yeah. okay. Officer Fong? Nay. And then uh, Commissioner Stack Lozano? Hi. Commissioner Stack Lozano, I. What are the calculations? Okay. Um, with seven eyes and ten nays, those um, who um, voted against was Officer Adair, Commissioner Ye, Vice Chair Lasana, Officer Fong, Commissioner Dang, Commissioner Aliotu Pierre, Commissioner Perez, Commissioner Marquin, Officer Lenomir, and then Chair Barker Plummer. The motion does not pass. Thank you. The motion is not passed. I will say that that does not mean that we can't inquire with Rec and Park moving forward. So it's not a no, but it does mean that um, commissioners can individually work on that. Uh, I think we can move to item 6B, which is Youth Commission History from Ken Kunsumbath. Please correct me. Sorry. Hello, good evening, Youth Commissioners. Um, my name is Kent Kunzema. I am, uh, I was on the very first San Francisco Youth Commission and also on the second year. I just want to come back and talk a little bit about the commission, uh, how it was formed, all the history, um, all the stuff that we did, um, and answer any questions you might have at the end. Uh, I could easily go an hour because there's just so much. So what I'll do is I'll just give a brief overview and I'll mention a lot of topics that I don't have time to talk about. If you want to know more about it, feel free to ask at the end. Um, I was actually involved before the commission was passed. I turned 18 that year and I was able to actually vote to have the uh, youth commission pass. Um, after it passed, it was very exciting, but then the city said uh, it's illegal to have the Youth Commission serve because under the charter, you have to be over 18 to serve in the Youth Commission. So they sent it back on the ballot to uh, amend it to say over 18. So it got passed twice. So once it was passed, you would think what happens, like how does the commission form? We had not a stapler name, we didn't have an office, we didn't have a staff, we didn't have anything. You would think, who steps in, the city steps in, nobody stepped in, so the community stepped in and said, hey, you guys, you, you have to pass the budget, you have to help get the commissioner's uh, staffing. Uh, so we actually, at this point, we got selected and we got sworn in, so we were homeless. <laughs> so we had to go to the uh, Board of Supervisors office and then say, uh, we, we need a budget. So fortunately, we were able to get it passed and then we start hiring our staff. Uh, we were looking for office space. Um, at this time, the city hall was under uh, retrofitting. So everyone was evicted from uh, city hall so they could uh, shape up the form of the foundation. So when we found out that after it reopens, we would not be in City Hall because there's only a limited amount of office spaces and we were looking at office spaces at um, 
market in Venice, why that would be looked at based on Webster. And I just felt that to be a youth commission and not have the meetings here and would have we would have had to have our meetings in our office space, which most commissions do, because I think there's like over 20 commissions, so not everyone gets to be here. So we found out that the Board of Supervisor President at that time, Barbara Kaufman, was in charge of real estate, who gets to go, who gets to come back. So we said we need to be here. So we had a meeting with the uh, whoever was appointed by her and plus a couple of us and myself we sat down in our office and we told her why it was important that we need to be here. We felt that if young people are going to come and talk about City Hall, they need to physically come here, stand here, stand next to this lectern and speak into this mic and not in our office space somewhere, you know, outside. So thankfully she approved and we were to get a space there. And keep in mind, a lot of people want to be in City Hall. But the majority of them, um, actually a few of them actually got kicked out who were current tenant because real estate was so valuable and the mayor and the supervisor kind of had their favorites. So not everyone made it in. So th that was important for us. Um, during our first term, it was really spent a lot of time getting the staff. We didn't, we didn't get a chance to really do a lot of uh, issues because we had to get everything formed. We did work on um, bylaws. We worked on um, having a multi-Bay Area youth conference meeting with the other youth commission in the Bay Area. We thought like, oh, let's, let's talk to them, see what uh, great ideas we're working on. Maybe we can share. And then on paper, it sounded like a great idea. And while it was great meeting them, we just felt that they were even younger in terms of ideas than us. We wanted to do things. We want to move the meter. I remember I was like, what's the biggest issue you face? And one of the commissioners said, oh, I remember one time we fought over the font of a letter. And I just remember like that's, that's not something that we would ever want to do here and would actually avoid to do something like that. So while it was a great idea, I felt that we in turn can set the tone because at that time, the San Francisco Youth Commission was the, in terms of strength, has more teeth than any other uh, youth commission area, uh, mainly because uh, they tried to pass it, board supervisors said no, uh, supervisor Alito's, let's put it on a ballot as a charter amendment. And for those who don't know what a charter is, it's pretty much the city constitution. It overrides everything. So the mayor and the board supervisor can't get rid of you guys if you do something wrong or stupid. It's up to the city voters, so it has a little bit more teeth to it. Um, in terms of um, bylaws, uh, I remember we were deciding how to form the commission, and the vision was very important. It's, it allows us to shape the, our future. Because I was thinking about you guys when we were first there, thinking about what happened if I leave, what happened with um, how the commission will look, how would they operate. So that's why I put, put a lot of thought and consideration in all the stuff that we do. And while I was cleaning up, I actually found a copy of the original bylaw with all the stains uh, from like over 20 years ago. And I'm very pleased that a lot of it that's in here is still the current bylaws. So it shows that um, uh, a lot of history and, and a lot of that thought we went into still carry through. We had we couldn't pass the committee section because people had issues on what committee to be, cre to be created. So that was, um, I remember I had to make a motion to remove the committee, pass the whole bylaw, 
then at the committees down the road and then through the years, different commissions have different committees because of the issue changes. So I just want to submit this for uh, archive. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Let's see. Um, other thing that we did, uh, we had a youth conference. We had two. The first one was done by the mayor. His goal was to do a five-year plan for all children and youth issue. It was a big deal. Everybody wants to get in. Everyone has something to say. Every nonprofit had a word. I knew, and the mayor divided up in age group, you know, zero to five, five to whatever, whatever to 18. And unfortunately, a lot of us went and we ended up walking out because we just felt like when we look up, it was all adults talking about youth. I'm like, we're, we're all the youth, you know? So it wasn't intentional. And then uh, word got out, the mayor got upset because they had so much time and media and PR and the headline in front of the examiner is, youth walks out of mayor conference. So he got upset and he asked to speak with us and we're, we're like us. So we end up, myself, the chair, um, sat down with Mayor Brown in his office, just the two of us, and he just want to say, um, I, I want to know what's going on. We, we told him, and he was trying to blame us that we, the youth commission orchestrated, we did not. There are many other youth that are walked out. You don't get together and say, hey, let's walk out. It's just after we heard, we didn't like it, young people just walked out. So it's like, what do you guys want? And then we said, we want our own uh, conference run by youth, for youth, and he's like, done. What else do you want? Uh, we want Muni buses to, to pick people up, so drop them off. He's like, okay, done. Uh, anything else? And then our, our chair, Julie, was like, yeah, and I want a meeting with all your department heads so we can talk about, you know, having youth more involved. And he was like, done. We're like, okay. So the more of the story is like, it doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, if you ask, you'll be surprised what you can get. So that was a great learning lesson. So. Fast forward, I don't have time to talk about the, a lot about the conference, but basically it was great, it was successful. I remember talking to Levi's and Gap, trying to get money and we had it done. 1,300 people showed up, um, great event. And if you want more to know more about it, we can talk about it later. Um, afterwards, we also had a youth commission retreat. But the first year, it was really, hard to decide what to do. We kind of want to do everything. So we decided to have a retreat to kind of refocus on the mission and be like, okay, what do you guys want to do? You guys have 20 topics, but we, we don't have time. Let's narrow it down to a few. And with that, that really made a difference and uh, really helped guide us. And I remember one of the quotes was one of the commission was, why didn't we do this in the beginning of the year? <laughs> so it really made a difference, helps refocus. Uh, other issues that uh, I want to talk about, but I don't have time. We, we struggle a lot with the staffing issue and how to work with staff, how being effective. Uh, I want to talk about the power access in City Hall. 30 seconds. Okay. You could, if you want to know, we could talk more about it. Um, we had problems with, um, with the quorum. Um, we're trying to get rid of people who, doesn't, who didn't show up, but the commissioner was just like, oh, we can't get rid of them. They're such a nice guy. Like, but we can't pass them. We don't have enough. One time we didn't even have quorum. Um, lastly, I just want to say subjects that we worked on that I don't have time to share is youth, youth initiated projects, having youth on board. We talked about skateboard with LGBTQ plus issues. We talked about youth job and we had co-hearings with other uh, commissions such as the Human Rights Commission. So I open up for uh, comments uh, from commissioners. Thank you. 
Um, and I will note that we we have previously kicked people off the commission, and I, I'm not not scared to do it if we have to. But um, are there any questions for our presenter? I'll also say I think that this is a good ongoing relationship. So even if you couldn't share everything now, absolutely, we've been working on archival stuff, aka looking through file cabinets and stuff. So I appreciate you joining us. Uh, any questions? Question here. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a very entertaining and empowering story. Um, I think, you know, to know, I think it's like, even now, I think the Youth Commission's like, ordinance story doesn't get talked about enough. I think we just hear, oh, 1994, it was Charter Amendment, and it then suddenly just popped up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, having to hear, and, you know, being able to hear, like, the struggles that, you know, you and the the founding um Founding Commission had to go through to get to where we are today. I mean, that I feel like that is very empowering. Um, I would also, I just also want, I just want to know more about the youth conference because mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think it exists anymore. And um, you know, I'm wondering, like, you know, how how did you see this youth conference kind of change the way that youth were able to engage in San Francisco and with, engage with local politics in San Francisco? It was the first time anybody ever asked young people, what do you want? Like, what's important to you? And how? And a lot of people care, but they didn't have access. That's the whole point of the Youth Commission, being that bridge to someone in this neighborhood who doesn't have a car, someone in that neighborhood don't have an after-school program, or someone over here who's hungry every day. So they can tell that to the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor, and it doesn't do anything, but if they come in to you, and you are able to help bridge that gap. And that's what the conference did, because it, it was a whole day conference, and it covered almost every topic that you can think of. I mean, we, we even brought them food. We had a place for, uh, place for child care for um, teen parents. We had muni buses bringing people in. So it was very comprehensive. We had to ask people for money, a lot of money. The city couldn't pay for it by themselves. So it's, that's why I said there was like, I had to physically go to Gap headquarter, Levi headquarter, and ask those uh, people for like 5,000 here, 10,000 there. Um, at the end, I think what we got was not only that they were um, more empowered, but at the end we had a little registration form that has their name, and then it had little boxes that you can check. Check for uh, skateboarding, check for youth employment, check for homelessness, check for whatever. And unfortunately our staff didn't know how to take care of that information, so we had 1,300 of these cards that with a click of a button, if we categorize it, we could say, oh, there's a skateboard hearing, click send. All these people would get notification, there's a skateboard hearing Tuesday. So unfortunately, like I say, we were really young and we didn't have the infrastructure. We just had an office and two computers. So, so something like that is a very powerful. If you want to do something like that, it will take a lot of time because it took about three to four months and both of our staff at that time dedicated 100% of their hours to that conference because it's, it was a little, a few people here, a few people there, I mean, talking about paid employees to, to make that conference happen. Thank you. Any other questions? Commissioner Wu? 
Yeah, I just want to say once again, thank you so much for coming. It's crazy to know that like all your work has paid off and like we're here now because of so much things that you've done in the past. My question is like given the fact that you've done so much, like lead a whole youth conference, like given the pushback, I imagine you've received quite a lot. How did you like go through it and like what advice do you have for us on the youth commission right now? Uh, advice for in going through what? Oh, like, yeah, given, like, I'd imagine, like, all the pushback that you received, or just, like, criticism. For us on the Youth Commission right now, do you have any advice going forward that you really want to emphasize? Advice to you, yes. I'll t tell you what I learned. I hope you guys would take this advice to hand. Is uh, originally the super, the commission was passed to advise the board supervisor and the mayor and to give the recommendations. I recommend you stop doing that. That does nothing. Nobody cares what you recommend. I think you should focus on moving the meter. You need to go and ask for things. You have to ask for money. You have to ask for more spaces, more parks, more after school program. You have to think dollars, dollars. For example, what I learned in high school was that advocacy. For example, a park doesn't magically appear in a neighborhood. Somebody asked for that. Group of people, parents, family, some politician. All those people have to get together, advocate for that, get it approved, get it budgeted, get it built, then it appears. So the city budget is, I don't know how many billions it is, but who, 14. And it's an annual budget process. I, have, I know because I was the treasurer. Everything gets approved annually. You can't have a multi-year budget. So commissioner has that annual budget. Uh, Park and Rec has that annual budget. So you have to do that every year. 14 billion, you know who controls that? 11 supervisor, one mayor, 12 people. So to say we don't have money to build this and when you have 14 billion is a lie. If you don't ask for the money, that money went to the waterfront, that money went to real estate, that money went to 12 whole new garbage trucks. You know, if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. So that's why it's very important to move the meter by physically asking for things. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think that does wrap up our time, but I want to thank you for coming. And also, I'm sure, like I said, that this will be a longer partnership. Um, I do have an idea of making you a podcast host or <laughs> guest at some point. Um, what? Oh, and we have a BPP for you. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, please keep in contact and um, we'd love to have you on our next retreat too, if that ends okay. up working out. I would love to, yeah. Um, I think the last time I came here was uh, January 2011, did the same thing. And, and I think that's, that's when they heard the forward retreat and it really changed the commission doing things. So if you love me come to retreat, I'll be more than happy to do a longer presentation and give more details and more history about uh, the commission for new and old. Uh, I'll stay till the end and I have a business card if you want some. And if you have extra question, I'll be more than happy to answer it at the end for you. Thank you so okay. much. Uh, with that, that concludes item six. Clerk, please call item seven. Um, item number seven is um, legis sorry, <laughs> legislation referred. Thank you. 7A is BOS file 230446, Planning Code, Zoning Map, Housing Production. An ordinance amending the housing code to encourage housing production. Um, and our presenter is Aaron Starr from Sansco Planning. Thank you so much. 
Uh, hi, thank you for having me. My name is Aaron Starr, Manager of Legislative Affairs for the Planning Department. Um, I have uh, copies of the PowerPoint. I made 20. There's a lot of you, <laughs> but hopefully everyone gets one. Um, so I haven't. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the planning department and what we do, um, but basically we regulate uh, how big a building can be um, and what the building can look like and what uses can go on inside. Um, so that's very basic of what the planning department does. And so this ordinance um, was introduced by Mayor Breed and it is part of her housing for all. Um, program um, and is based off of the housing element that we just recently passed. So uh, this ordinance called the Constraints Reduction Ordinance is part of the housing element implementation. Um, there'll be a lot of other ordinances that get introduced. Uh, the big one is going to be the rezoning basically on the west side to uh, density view control and increase height. Um, but this one is just dealing with existing code requirements. Um, so the city uh, per state or arena goals are required to build 82,000 housing units within the next um, eight years. Uh, about 50,000 of those have to be affordable. Um, so that averages about 10,000 units a year. We average about maybe 2,000 units a year we have. So if this is a significant increase in the amount of housing that we have to produce. Um, one reason that uh, we don't produce a lot of housing um, is because we have one of the longest entitlement processes in the um, state, um, longer than any other city in California. Um, so the proposed changes to this ordinance uh, aim to streamline housing production and simplify our rather complicated planning code, which is 1,200 pages and three volumes. Um, so several implementation programs in the housing amount um, have a January 1st, 2024 deadline, and we've actually missed the deadline on some things in the Housing Constraints Reduction Ordinance. And if you've been reading the paper, HCD is not happy with us and sending us threatening letters about that, but we hope to have it all passed um, by the deadline on January or December 24th. Uh, and then, like I mentioned before, there's another rezoning effort that's happening on the west side, mainly the west side of the city, uh, not only um, that uh, is proceeding separately from this ordinance. So uh, it's can be broken down into four sections. One creates um, what we're calling the priority equity geographies. Um, it's intended to preserve existing processes within this um, special use district. Uh, we're going to do some process improvements. Um, so we're moving process in the planning code to expedite um, between three and nine months of a project getting approved. We're rationalizing and standardizing some of our building, um, our, our code requirements uh, for easier compliance. And we're also relaxing some rules on affordable housing projects to make them a little more feasible. So first with the priority equity geographies, um, this proposed SUD is based on the priority equity geographies used in the housing element. This is a roughly an area of the city um, uh, deemed by the Department of Public Health that needs a little more attention paid to it. Um, it excludes an overlap with the well-resourced neighborhoods map. So there's another map, well-resourced neighborhoods, those with lots of access to good park schools and jobs. Um, and so we took out the overlap with that. Uh, the map was expanded a tiny bit to include all of Japantown, Cayabente Cuatro Cultural District, which is in the Mission, um, and areas uh, west of Mission Street and the Outer Mission. 
Um, and so the SUT maintains existing neighborhood controls um, for notification and demolition and also large lot development. Um, and we can use this SUT in the future um, to do targeted programs in that area if we so choose. So for process improvements, um, right now the planning code requires you to get what's called conditional use authorization if you want to exceed a certain height. So for example, in uh, some districts, uh, the height limit may be 80 feet, but you have to go to the planning commission uh, if you want to build a building over 50 feet. So this removes that conditional use requirement. Um, it also removes the conditional use requirement for lot mergers in our RTO districts. These are uh, residential transit oriented. So that zoning district was created in the Market Octavia plan in the early aughts. I'm not sure all of you were alive then, but um, so it, it, it's, uh, it's basically focused on the, around the Hayes Valley neighborhood. Um, and it removes neighborhood notice for some expansions uh, when you're adding a new unit outside of the priority equity geographies. So whenever you expand your building currently, you have to send a notice out to your neighbors. This will pair that back significantly. Um, and it grants administrative approval for all reasonable accommodations to the zoning administrator. A reasonable accommodation is when you have a disability and say uh, you need to put a parking slab in your front setback or you need to add an elevator but it's going to be in the rear yard um, the zoning administrator can waive the code requirement because of the americans with disabilities act and so all of these reasonable accommodations will not be able to be approved administratively without a hearing um, there's a provision in the code that allows you to do double density if you're building senior housing um, and this will allow that without conditional use authorization. And it removes um, the hearing requirement for state density bonus projects without an underlying entitlement and allows the commission to delegate approval of authority to the director uh, for projects with underlying entitlement. So um, right now we have this program called the state density bonus project that uh, allows you to get more height and exemptions from the planning code if you provide a certain level of affordability. Um, and those projects have to go to the planning commission even though the planning commission has no authority to deny the project so it's just a hearing for hearing's sake um so our housing demolition controls um, we have a section of the code called 317 so whenever you demolish a housing unit or merge it or um uh, demolition merger or convert so if you convert a housing unit to like a retail use you need to get conditional use authorization um, so within the priority equity geographies SUD all those uh, controls would stay the same but outside the priority equity geographies um, SUD uh, units um, could be demolished so long as they're not tenant occupied and don't have a buy within the last five years none of the units are subject to rent control um, or price controls uh, the building proposed for demolition is not a historic building and you're adding at least one unit. So if you meet those criteria, it's a longer list that's like a shortened version of it. But if you meet those criteria, um, you don't have to go to the planning commission to demolish the house and um, build a new one. So for our building and zoning standards, they, um, they're quite specific. And so uh, we've tried to pare them down a bit to make it a little more uh, easier to implement and a little more rational. Um, so 
the rear yard requirements used to be 25% in single family districts, but 45% in two and three unit districts, but you could average and there are all these different complicated things. And now we just have a standard 30% rear yard in all of our um, lower density neighborhoods and a 25% rear yard in our higher density neighborhoods, which is already existing. Um, it, we amend the averaging and maximum setback for front rear yards. So, um, before you would have to average your two adjacent neighbors and you would go somewhere in the middle and now you just have to average or you just have to meet what your shortest distance is on that. Um, the, our lot standards are currently 2,500 square feet. So if you look at a, if you look at the sunset or actually really any neighborhood in San Francisco is a very consistent lot pattern of. 25 feet by 100, it can be 120 or 80, depending, but it's pretty standard of a 2,500 square foot lot. Uh, because of state law and um, sort of requirements in the housing element, uh, we're reducing that to 1,200 square feet, um, but you still have to have 20 feet of lot frontage. Um, permits, and, and this, we'd also allow uh, developments to wrap the lot. So if you have a corner lot, you can build all along the property line and then put your rear yard in the back corner. And then um, we have some open space requirements that uh, are very difficult to meet. So we're removing those more complicated uh, open space requirements to make them easier to meet. Uh, we have definition for what's an active use on the ground floor for residential building. It's very prescriptive and we're expanding that. So when you build a residential building, it has to have active uses on the ground floor, things like uh, retail or lobbies. And we're expanding that to include like bike rooms or mail rooms, things like that. Group housing and homeless shelters are not, uh, are almost principally permitted in all zoning districts, um, but they're not principally permitted in our industrial districts and in our lower density neighborhoods like um, single family and two family homes. So now homeless shelters and group housing will be principally permitted in all those districts. That was also a requirement in the housing element. Um, our current re requirements for owning a home-based business is you can't have employees there. Um, and so we're changing that to allow at least two employees in a home-based business. Um, and then we're updating our definition of what a dwelling it is to just comply with state law. So for affordable housing, and I'm almost done, um, we have, we grant fee waivers for like paying fees into parks, childcare, things like that um, for 100% affordable housing projects. Uh, but currently you have to be funded by the city or specific agencies to get that fee waiver. Uh, we're saying any 100% affordable housing project, no matter who funds it, is eligible for those fee waivers. And uh, we're increasing the AMI, um, which is area median income, from 80% to 120%. So you can have a project that provides um, an inclusionary rate of up to 120%. And then uh, the, it permits the removal of one housing unit in our Home SF pro um, program. OMSF is a, another density bonus project or program like the state density one, but it's our local one. Um, before it said you couldn't use the program if you were demolishing any uh, residential unit. This will allow you to demolish one residential unit. The thinking is that sometimes there's a storefront and a neighbor commercial district and there's a unit above. And um, we'd like to redevelop that building and add more units um, and not have that one unit above stop that development. 
And then this is a little in the weeds. Um, it eliminates CEQA impact as an eligibility requirement for this home SF program. Um, CEQA review still happens. Uh, CEQA is the California Environmental Equality Act. It just doesn't preclude you from using the program. Uh, so current status, uh, the, the uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention uh, to the news, but it's been at the uh, Board of Supervisors for about three months now. It's had several different hearings. It has been duplicated, I think, twice or four times. No, I think oh. it's now four. Right. Uh, it was duplicated again today okay. at the land use hearing. Uh, so the original file was amended, uh, cleaned up quite a bit from other amendments and is pending at the board for its first read, which will be tomorrow. Um, so we are hoping that the board passes it and uh, then has a second read next week, and then we will meet the October 24th uh, deadline for the state has set. Um, the other versions are doing things that are substantive changes that need a little more uh, kind of wordsmithing from the city attorney, so um, those will be coming back in subsequent uh, hearings, but the overall bulk of the ordinance um, is actually before the board right now. So. Um, that was a lot of information, and I uh, thank you for staying with me on that, but I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you, and um, I appreciate you coming and explaining this to us. We've, been, we've had this referred to us more or less since the beginning of it being reviewed at the board, um, and we've had discussions about it, but it's helpful to have someone go through it entirely, especially from SF Planning, who did the back-end work of actually <laughs> writing and reviewing and all, all of that. Um, we have, I'll open it up for questions. My first question is if you can explain a little bit what happened at today's housing and land, was it land use, land use and transportation committee. Sorry. Um, at the board, I watched it and saw multiple motions that, yeah. So I'm wondering, cause we have four different files now. <laughs> so for various reasons that have to do with state law and okay. other issues. Um, Supervisor Mandelman amended the ordinance uh, to include two special use districts. One is the Corona Heights special use district and one is the Central Neighborhoods Large Home special use district. Those special use districts are intended to stop what are colloquially called monster homes, um, although some people find that term offensive, but um, basically any home over 3,000 square feet in the Corona Heights SUD required conditional use authorization and anything in the Corona Heights, or I'm sorry, in the large central neighborhoods, large residential special use district, I think it was also 3,000 square feet or something like that. That's exempting them? Uh, it requires them to go to the planning commission if you're going to do a home over 3,000 square feet. So that's what was. Um, the constraint reduction ordinance was amended to sunset the conditional use requirement, so no longer having to go to the planning commission um, and then put in a cap. So the the, the new cap with supervisor um, Mandelman put in is 3,000 square feet per unit. So if you, you just can't do a home more than 3,000 square feet per unit, it's a cap. The idea is um, our, our financial system, our um, I guess not our financial system, but the economic incentive and the planning code have traditionally incentivized the creation of very large single family homes. You can make a lot of money by buying a single family home, 
remodeling it, adding tons of square feet, and then selling it at a profit. We want to sort of change that narrative so that people, you can still have a 3,000 square foot home, but we want to put two units in it or three units in it um, so that we utilize the land that we have for more units to encourage housing production. Um, the reason, so he added that to the thing. It had to be re-referred back to the Planning Commission. The Planning Commission heard it last Thursday at a very quick turnaround, by the way. Um, and then it was at the land use committee this week where it was um, recommended for approval with some minor modifications and then forwarded to the full board. So now Supervisor Mandelman feels comfortable, um, from my understanding, I'm not, I don't want to speak for him, uh, voting for the constraints reduction ordinance at, because this amendment has happened. Um, one reason we got rid of the conditional use authorization is because the state is saying we can no longer do sub use subjective criteria to evaluate housing housing um, uh, developments. So they have to be, it can be 40 feet tall, it can have 3,000 square feet per unit, but it can't be sort of squishy language like uh, will not impact neighborhood character or um, Things that aren't mm -hmm. objective. Yeah. So that was that. And then they duplicated again uh, because uh, Supervisor Peskin wanted to add neighborhood notification language to include Chinatown, which it has not had in the past. Um, and then there, there are some other amendments that were added. And so those have to sit while the Mandelman ordinance can move forward. So the version that we have before us today and is being voted on or has its first reading tomorrow or its second reading has its first reading tomorrow because it was continued last week okay yeah. um has its first reading tomorrow is the one that includes supervisor mandelman's amendments but does not include those of president peskin or is it the original file uh it is mandelman's and the original file that are getting their first read tomorrow oh both of them i believe they're going to be merged or they'll both pass, but it'll get all worked out after they pass. Okay. Um, and then the Peskin amendments are still at the land use committee. Yeah. Okay. I see. Is there two? So there's the original ordinance, and then tomorrow there's the original ordinance, and there's a second one that is a duplicate file, which is Supervisor Mandelman's amendments. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Are there any? questions from commissioners about the presentation or, um, you know, about the process as well of what's happening. Commissioner Aliotto Pierre. Hi, thanks for coming and presenting. This is very helpful. This is much clearer than just kind of everything I've known for this one in the past a little bit. Um, okay, so for the process improvements, I have two different questions. Sure. The first one is one of the bullets says removes neighborhood notice for some expansions and you didn't like go into like what those expansions would actually like be. Sure. I can do that. I was trying to be brevity. Um, so the original ordinance just got rid of neighborhood notice altogether. Um, we used to have to notice if you're, um, you know, just expanding your building or changing the use. Um, Prop H got rid of the changing the use for um, principally permitted businesses, but that's separate. Um, so, but based on feedback from the community and from the board um, and Supervisor Melgar, we added some notice back into it. So now 
Um, if you're adding a unit, you don't ever have to do 311 notification. You don't have to notice your neighbors. Um, if you're doing a horizontal addition, you don't have to notice your neighbors. If you do a vertical addition where you are not adding a unit, you have to notice your neighbors. If you are expanding a home to over 3,000 square feet or 25%, um, which is ever greater, you have to do a neighborhood notification and, and not adding a unit. If you add a unit, you never have to do notice. So it's the idea of encouraging more units um, rather than just large single family homes. Thank you. And then um, another one. So for permits, double density senior housing and all zoning districts without like conditional use, could you just like go into a little bit of like why we need that and then also making sure that we like protect our senior citizens from not being in overpopulated establishments? Sure. So um, this happened. This was put in the code a long time ago, and I don't really know the story. But um, we would we would allow um, someone to add if if you were only allowed to have ten units. If you dedicated to senior housing, we would allow you to have twenty units, and that makes the project more financially feasible. So you get more units, um, and you can sell rent more units or sell more units. And, you know, you make more of a profit. Um, and we also are desperately in need of senior housing, all housing, but at the time people were really focused on senior housing. Um, that control was important when we had um, area-based density controls. So we said you can only have one unit per 800 square feet of lot area. So you take the lot area of 2,500 square feet, divided by 800, and that's how many units you can have. So if it was senior housing, you could double that. The way that planning and zoning is working now in the city, we're moving away from that formula. So now we're saying you can put in as many units and still you know, comply with life safety issues that the building department has in that box of say 40 feet by 75 feet. You can put as many units in there as you can fit you know, with fire, safety, exposure, all that other stuff. And we don't control density based on lot area. So as the um, so that senior housing provision is not going to be very impactful, but we're doing it now because it was in the housing element, and there will still be some zoning districts that do lot area density um, after the rezoning happens, but a lot fewer. And then, okay. sorry, one last one. Quickly, I'll be quick. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about this. Um, so. There's like that little part in the amendment about uh, affordable housing and all of that. What is, is there anything stopping people from tearing down like a traditional house that isn't technically historically like significant, rebuilding into a modern one that doesn't fit the character of the city and then, or not or anything like that, but just like building more units within it, prizing them all the same and just making it incredibly unaffordable to live there. So when you build, it's kind of yes and no. If you build over 10 units in San Francisco, you have to uh, set a certain percentage for affordable housing. Um, anything under 10 units, we don't because it doesn't work out financially. It just doesn't, you can't extract that from the developer. There's no financial incentive for them to build it. So um, for the the type of a development that the housing element's focusing on and that this ordinance is sort of focusing on, which is trying to densify the western side of the city or, or more well-resourced neighborhoods, they will be four to six units. So they won't be including um, inclusionary, any inclusionary units in that. 
The idea, though, is that the more units you have, um, presumably the cost would come down for more supply. You'll meet demand. That's a very contentious topic. So, um, we'll, you know, I'll leave that at that. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Adair. Um, thank you so much for coming. I think we're excited to finally have someone. Uh, I was just wondering if you could clarify so that you can to, to really like prove the impact of this legislation to the commission, like on average, how long it would take right now if you want to um, demolish a home versus how long it would take without without the um, without the process in like in a family opportunity district, like what would the difference be? Sure. So when you demolish.